Dave Williams presents Conversations.Buzz. Doug, my old bud. How you Dave doing, Dave Williams, I'm okay. You look good? Everything hurts. I'm surprised. That's what your shirt <laughs> says, right? Yeah. I'm surprised to see you wearing earphones. Uh, I've done that because uh, it just sounds better in this room where I, I got a guy coming. This shows you where we're at and over here. We got a guy coming today to build a, a catio, uh, a, a little outdoor enclosure for the cats uh, to go yes. out because we have a lot of coyotes and we lost one to coyotes a few years oh. ago. So we don't let them go out anymore. Yeah. But as a result, there's a lot of noise potential. I got and, you. Mm-hmm. I got you. All right, listen, I just kind of wanted to catch up. It was the first time we did one of these conversations. This was one of the, one of the very first uh, podcasts that I did. And as fascinating as you were and all that, I just think it's time to catch up. And I remember making you a, a solemn promise that we'd get back together after your book was published. And not only has your book been published, it has been received with rave reviews. And I, I gather from everything I read that it, it must be selling well. It's selling. It's not a bestseller, but it's a seller. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's on it's on a seller list, not necessarily a bestseller list. And that's fine. I never expected it's a small independent uh, press. It's a first time novel. It's not my name's not James Patterson or Stephen King. So uh, I'm, you know, as I probably told you back way back when we did this the first time, my objective to Frank Shadow was just to have it physically exist in the world. Uh, and, uh, I, I'm blessed that, uh, my wife and I are not counting on uh, any of our books in order to make February's rent. So, <laughs> so as a result, that takes some of the heat off, but obviously I'd like to do well because I'm proud of it. Uh, and I also hope that it'll sell well enough that someone will let me do another one. Well, I am, uh, really pleased and proud to have been one of your, Early readers. Yes, you got one of those uh, paperback advanced reader copies that advanced we send out. Advanced reader copies, not for resale. No, but so. this one, aha, there's the hardcover. Yeah. <laughs> That's this a real book. It's, tru- it's truly a great, great story. Very, very well told, of course. Now, I'm curious because I don't remember if I mentioned this to you or if it was just something that uh, that hit me hard and strong when I when I read the book. And that is, uh, um, it, it, it seems to have your voice. And, of course, it's written in first-person narrative. And uh, it, I, I don't know why that, that surprised me, but I couldn't help but think of you as uh, the main character throughout the whole book because of that. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because uh, you know, going out and doing book events over the last, you know, four months or so, a number of people seized on the fact that my name is Doug McIntyre, DM, and the lead character's name is Danny McKenna, DM, and yeah. they infused a, a, a secondary meaning to that or some kind of psychological connection, which I suppose is possible in the deep recesses of an author's brain, but it wasn't the intent. Definitely the book is written in my if I can say that I have a literary style in terms yeah. of the way the the newspaper columns that I write are, are are I inject a lot of my own sort of sensibility into it, and this character 
I relied on a lot of uh, experiences for, in terms of location, Eastern Queens, New York, in a period of time uh, that is very specific. So it was easy to me for me to write in that voice. But, you know, Danny McKenna is actually just a coincidence. I, I had a friend, a high school friend, still Facebook friends with, uh, named Steve McKenna, who lived directly across the street from the Scobie Grill in Little Neck, Queens, New York. And and he lived in this house that I, I always loved the fact that he lived, when you live across the street from a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year diner, you have a different view of life than if you live in <laughs> Twinkle Puff Lane in a cul-de-sac somewhere in suburbia. Uh, so I, I decided I wanted to make that the setting for the family home. And then I thought, well, as long as I'm stealing the McKenna home, I might as well steal the name. And in terms of uh, how it became Danny to sort of ape Doug McIntyre, Danny McKenna, uh, Davey Johnson was the manager of the Mets for many years. And it always occurred to me that at a certain point in life, you shouldn't be Davey anymore. You should should (laughs) be Dave or David, right? All the billies Uh, and. Exactly. You should sort of like, exactly. So, uh, and part of the journey of the lead character is to become an adult. So at some point, not this isn't a big spoiler alert, but he he stops calling himself Danny and goes to Dan or Daniel. So I needed a name that could be a Y and right. a Y. So right. that's but it was really just happenstance. But it uh, to to separate to the extent that's possible myself from the character, I didn't do the audio book, which a lot of people thought, well, you're, you know, radio blabbermouth, you could do your own audio book. Mm-hmm. And there were people who, there are a lot of people who wanted me to do it that way. But uh, and I just felt like my voice reading it on top of everything else is just, everybody asks every author anyway, did that really happen? Did that really happen? Yeah. And, and as I've said, it is factually it is factually fiction. It is emotionally biographical, if sure. that makes sense. I th- it's the only way I can imagine writing a story is emotionally biographical, or at least something that you can relate to personally. Yeah, although a lot of people will take actual events from their lives and just change a couple of names or maybe a couple of place. Uh, you know, that's that works too. Some people can infuse a work of fiction with a lot of their own reality. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter to the reader. To the reader, it shouldn't make any difference. Exactly. I think that, that that only becomes an issue, I think, when the reader knows the author, because then there's sort of like this purient, like, right. are you really that perverted? Did you really have a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the answer is yes, yeah. by the way. Just I was reading that, that portion that you're referring to. I got, oh, my gosh, Doug. Really? Yeah, I know. See, that's what happens. That's what happens. And I'm happy to report that no, that didn't happen. That <laughs> okay. Happened. Well, we don't want to give it all away, but we do want to you know, make another nice mention of it. It's uh, Frank Shadow. Frank Shadow. There you go. Doug Thank McIntyre. you. And it's right what, there on Amazon. What um, What genre do you consider this? Just well, there. Uh, it's it's. I've been told by the people who make these categories that it falls into the category of literary fiction. Uh, if I had had my druthers, there was a book written in in the mid seventies by an author named Frederick Exley is one of my all time favorite novels. It's called a fan's notes. Uh, and that has an apostrophe in it, just like mine does. And I really didn't realize how indebted to that book I was until I had finished mine. Because once you finish a book, agents and publishers start asking you for 
uh, what they call comps comparisons. Like, what is it like? Yeah. And you have to kind of just, it's a shorthand so they can say, well, it's, and I compared it to, when I was forced to come up with comps. I hadn't been thinking in those terms. I realized that Frank, uh, Frank Shadow is, is similar architecturally to a fan's notes in that, um, Exley's book is about his own life. He's the lead character. He makes no bones about it. His, the character in the book is Frederick Exley, who's a rabid New York Giants fan. And he happened to go to USC at the same time Frank Gifford was there. And Frank Gifford had this, you know, exalted life of uh, the golden boy and his life spirals into, you know, total chaos. And I realized that, boy, kind of Frank Sinatra is my Frank Gifford. And uh, so anyway, the point is his book was titled uh, A Fan's Notes, A Fictional Memoir. And and if I had had my uh, say, I would have called it a fictional memoir uh, because it's written that way. It's written mm-hmm. as a memoir, although it didn't actually happen. And that's that's what the first person sort of present tense, the 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 narrator is discovering events at the exact same time that the author is for the most part for almost yeah. all the book. Uh, now, you know, what they tell you, though, when you get into the publishing world is, OK, tell me what shelf you find fictional memoirs, you know what? you know, And, and that's how they kind of push yeah. you into different categories. They said no bookstore has a shelf called fictional memoirs. Can't you just say, "Hey, come on, man! It's just a, it's a great play on words." Well, it's it's also <laughs> it is a subgenre. I mean, uh, there's been you know huge hits like, for instance, uh, "Memoirs of a Geisha" was a fictional memoir. It's a it's a type of book that does exist. It's just it's not commonly yeah. executed. So as a result, they just say it's literary fiction. Did you plan this book out, or did you uh, let it unfold? As it, uh, oh, Dave, as it went on the only, page. If only I had planned it out, I could have maybe, maybe taken 20 years off of the process. The fact that I didn't plan it off, I sat down in 1998, uh, and just started spewing out words. And then I wrote myself into the inevitable cul-de-sac that I didn't know how to get out of. Yeah. I'm not, it wasn't a dead end. It was a cul-de-sac. I knew there was a way out, but I couldn't find the way out for a long time. Uh, and then, uh, so what I did, I spent years just rewriting and writing and rewriting the same first 120 pages over and over and over again. And then as inevitably happens, one day I was reading something else and the light bulb went off. I said, oh, that's what I've been missing. You know, I, I needed a deep, dark family secret that the lead character discovers about his father during World War II. And everything I came up with was either, you know, stolen or awful or both. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and then one day I was reading something I had never heard of before. I said, well, that, that is perfect. That's exactly what I need to have happen here. And then I couldn't wait to do it. And then it was, then it, the progression was, I knew how it was going to end. So I always knew where I was going. And that's a great, as you know, from your own writing, if you know how you're getting out of this, yeah, it makes it a lot easier to get there. <laughs> sometimes as you point out, getting from here to there is another problem or a whole well, set yeah, of problems. It, it, it is. They, all of it is a problem, but it makes it a lot easier if you know what the end objective is. And, yeah. uh, and fortunately that I always kind of knew what I wanted to do, but you do discover a lot. Uh, and it really is true. There's a lot of things that happen in the process where at some point, if it's working well, the characters do take over the storytelling. They almost dictate, you know, it's a, right. And storytelling is a series of, 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 uh, uh, of consequences of events followed by consequences. In other words, 
you know, if you live next door to a lovely family of well-behaved people who keep their lawn trimmed and they never, you know, they bring the newspaper up for you when you're out of town, that is a lovely way to live. It's a pretty dull story after a while. So (laughs) usually stories involve some kind of chaotic and unexpected, bizarre events to happen. And then you have to ask, well, what what would follow that? What would the reaction to that be, both for the character and the people around that character? There has to be consequences when dramatic things happen and profound things happen. I mean. Uh, otherwise you just have, you're going on a flat line and there's really not much interest in pursuing the story. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the possibility of writing another one. Are you writing another one? Are you working well, on something? Well, I was hoping to start on the 2nd of January, but I've got a bunch of, uh, commitments. You know, I am see the distinguished speaker series out here for years yes. and years and years. And I've got a, I've got a big one coming up at the end of January. So um, who's that? Uh, Liz Cheney. I'm doing uh, three oh. nights with Liz Cheney. So I've been reading her book and sort of doing prep for that because oddly, you know, normally when a politician is the speaker, they always want a gas bag. They want to do a speech. Uh, and you just do an intro and a Q&A, which is a piece of cake. But she doesn't want to do a speech. She wants to do a conversation. Mm-hmm. So you're on stage the whole night and you kind of have to shape a beginning, a middle and end and create some kind of a story to tell. Oddly enough, George W. Bush did the same thing. He didn't want to do a speech. He wanted to just do a conversation. Uh, but uh, for the most part, if you've got a politician, I did David Cameron, the prime minister, former prime minister of England a few years ago. And it was a breeze. You know, here he is, uh, you know. David Cameron, and and then he comes out and yammers for you know ninety minutes, and you do ten minutes of Q and A, and you're gone. <laughs> you're back in the car. I thought of you recently, fairly recently, too recently actually, when uh, when Tony Bennett passed away. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, uh, he was he was an amazing master. He really was. That was I got to do a night with him. That wasn't distinguished speaker series. Actually, uh, I got asked. Uh, to do the intro in, in a in a, a Q and A with Tony uh, out here in L.A. when there was a documentary made called The Zen of Bennett came out a few years back, and uh, they were going to do the L.A. debut, and they Tony was going to come in for it and do a Q and A at the Landmark Theater, and I've never said yes to anything faster in my entire life. I don't yeah. think the uh, distributor even got the word got to the N in Bennett before I said yes. <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, I had met him a couple of times before, but just a handshake at some jazz event here and yeah. there, uh, Rosemary Clooney's memorial and a few other events. But this that was a, you know, uh, a really uh, a lovely experience for me. Uh, and, you know, looking back on it, I think that I think that there was a little bit of the Alzheimer's exhibiting itself even then. Uh, there were there were some questions that I asked him that he his answers were total non sequiturs to the questions he was he was very much with it but uh but you, retrospectively uh, i i think that there probably was some indications i don't know if it had been actually clinically diagnosed at that point but uh it wasn't far away from being clinically diagnosed and then uh, you know his final act in show business is maybe the greatest final curtain call in the history of show business to go 
do two shows at Radio City Music Hall with Lady Gaga uh, that's nationally televised that was sensational uh, and then not remember that he did it the next day. I mean, which is so shocking, you know, but that Anderson Cooper interview, if you've never seen it, go uh, on YouTube. The whole thing is there. Anderson Cooper did a 60 minutes piece on this and he followed Tony and Tony's wife through the whole process, including meeting them on a bench in Central Park a day or two later. And he had no memory at all of having done the shows. It's it's just astonishing. The Radio City show or the or the conversation the City, with. No, the Radio City show. Oh, man. he had no reason to remember. <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> he had Cooper. absolutely no reason to remember the conversation with uh, me. But Anderson Cooper did an interview with him on the bench, right, at, you know, in Central Park, right around the corner from his uh, apartment. And he had no memory of having done the Radio City concerts. But he had no problem with the concert, apparently. And, and like- Dave, the, it, he not only had no problem with the concert, what was so shocking, uh, we all know from from ex- personal experience and just from the clinical studies on Alzheimer's, that music is literally the last thing to go. Yeah. Yeah. That in nursing homes, the people who have dementia clinics, if you play songs in their youth, they know every word and they just yeah. they can sing along. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that he could get the downbeat on songs he sung for 60 years and and be able to do the song. What amazed me was he trades choruses with Gaga in that. And I don't know how they do that, because you have to rehearse that. You, you have to know when it's your right. turn to come in and yeah. to get out and when to come in together. And there's no mistakes. It's just astonishing. You know, kind of as an aside, but I always think it's important to inject these uh, little bits of information when it might be helpful to people who are watching or listening. When my mother was in a in a uh, total care home before she passed, um, I I saw a uh, a video. It was on TV and I don't, I don't, rem- I don't remember the name of it, but it was about the fact what you were ta- talking about is it that, uh, the elderly with, uh, with dementia, uh, circumstances and, uh, you know, who, who, who get to a point where they can't even speak or acknowledge the presence of a child or somebody like that. They respond to music unbelievably. And, yeah. and especially. As you said, the music of their time, the music yeah. of their ear. So yeah, it's... I, I went online and I found that there was an entire store, probably a bunch of them, that uh, you know provide uh, retail items for for people. And I got my mother. Uh, it looks just like an old radio that you would have seen in the fifties, kind of a plastic thing with a big dial on it, but all she had to do to start it was lift the lid and it mm-hmm. would start playing. And it started playing music that I put on it. And mm-hmm. I put all of the stuff from the fifties that I heard her singing as I was a child. And, uh, and man, the, the nurses there said, you, she put, she turns that on every single day and it just stays on every day. And she's, it's changed her life. You know, it's very powerful. It's really powerful. I learned this. There was a guy, he's long gone now, Johnny Rotella, who died in, in his 90s. And he became he became a buddy. I'd have lunch with him once in a while because he was a fascinating, he was a great musician. He was a clarinet player for Benny Goodman and for everybody in between. He wrote 
song that Sinatra recorded called Nothing But the Best. And his wife uh, was in a nursing home because she had Alzheimer's. And he's the one who told me, oh, yeah, I sit with her. I go out seven days a week. I bring my clarinet and I just play and she sings along to me. And then I leave and she doesn't speak. Yeah. He had no words, but she could sing everything he played. You know, so it's very powerful. I've always and meanwhile, wondered. My wife and I, my wife and I sit playing Jeopardy every night along <laughs> with Ken Jennings. And, and this is how we play Gen- uh, Je- Jeopardy, Dave. The guy, the guy who was in the thing that we saw, that guy, <laughs> who is the guy? And, and the whole night, that's all we do is try to recall. And you <laughs> both know country. what you're talking Remember, about. Remember, we, yeah. we had to change planes there. <laughs> <laughs> well, music is something uh, I've never been able to get my, my brain around. It's like, uh, what is it about music? The emotion that, that's involved in its creation and its consumption. And why? Why does that exist? And I don't know if anybody, I'm sure it's been studied to death, but uh, I don't have any insight to it. Do you understand it at all? Well, I, I can't play a note of it. I know that. And I tried and I'm just, I couldn't do it. So I decided when I got the radio job a million years ago, I thought, well, I have this overnight platform and nobody cares what I'm doing here. So I'm midnight to five. So I'm going to play the music that I like. Uh, and, uh, sorry about that. My computer just made a big loud noise. Uh, and I thought, well, somebody has got to be in the audience and I will be, you know, I'm happy to be in the audience to applaud my betters. I've gotten to know over the years, a lot of really great musicians. I mean, world-class Grammy winners and, you know, and that's been such a thrill. And the, what I, I kind of have picked up is that, and this is hardly an original statement. It is a music is a universal language. It's completely, it, it transcends borders. I mean, as they always say that, uh, the Nazis and the allies were singing white Christmas yeah. from Derbingle during World War II. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, it it's it transcends you know when you see a star let's take somebody like billy joel or elton john or any of these people who have had massive careers uh taylor swift people globally uh who don't speak a word of english in their lives know every single word to these songs i mean the whole catalog of songs and it's a very astonishing it's really in a it's a moving thing to see when i mean i know billy joel does this in concert where he's in these giant stadiums and arenas and he'll stop singing at some point and hold the microphone out and the whole place yeah. sings the sings a uh, you know a chorus of the song uh so there's something about it that it gets into it gets into your into your molecules and and especially when the classical music people know that there are certain pieces of classical music that move people to joy or tears and then in popular songs you could attach words to music. And once the right words fall with the right music, you can never divorce them. If yeah. you hear an instrumental version of a pop tune that's an earworm for you, you can, you're just hearing the words. You just can't separate the words anymore from the melody. And that's kind of a magical thing. Yeah. You mentioned radio. I want to bring you back to it. Actually, Radio wants to bring you back to it. It's like that old. No, no. no it's like no. it's like that. Uh, the line from is either the Godfather or Goodfellas or whatever it is. You know, yeah. every time I think I'm out, they pull yeah, me back, back in, yeah, and that's right. kind of what's happened to you. Um, and it's been fascinating to watch. So you've been doing some uh, fill-in work at KFI, and I yeah. see you're having a good time with it. Uh yes and no. Uh, I, to be honest, is it, is it really uh, more stimulating over there? Than- 
Well, it, it was exciting. <laughs> it was exciting to get the call for just a little LA radio inside stuff. KFI has dominated the talk radio market out here for a very, very long time. And, you know, those of us who are at KBC, and I was treated very well at KBC. I have nothing but affection for the place, including this microphone I'm using, which I stole the mic holder from KBC when they tore the building down. Uh, But uh, not the microphone, just the mic holder. Uh, But, uh, you know, when you're at KBC, uh, we were getting our asses kicked by KFI. We kind of, you know, were like on the outside with our noses pressed against the glass, you know. And wouldn't it be nice? So, uh, but, but KFI felt no, uh, had no incentive to be plucking people from KBC to put on their airwaves because they were killing all of us. So why bother, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so I was shocked you, when but, I got. But for anybody who doesn't know, you you were extremely popular at KBC, both your morning show and before that your overnight show, and uh, so you had recently departed the airwaves and uh, KFI decided you know when they need somebody why not ask doug mcintyre well actually it was almost five years was it I, that I long left. really yeah it was four <laughs> and a half years i i left in december of 18 and i got a call in june of 23 uh and the reason it was impossible to say no is that uh, you know i had a book coming out in july of 23 so yeah. with, with with scheduled book signings all over southern california and uh the signal for KFI goes from Cabo San Lucas and I picked it up in Oregon. So, so as a result, it was, it was just impossible to say, no, I, I, I didn't have any, I had zero interest in going back on the air. I really felt like that part of my life, which I enjoyed enormously. It was very good to my family, but it was over. Uh, but I just couldn't say no. And there, and I acknowledge that there was a professional curiosity to say, well, what does it feel like to be at KFI? Yeah, uh, I, I had literally done one day uh, a long time ago. I did one Sunday shift for two hours in between being fired at KBC and coming back to KBC uh, from the first day at the morning show till syndicating Red Eye Radio. Hmm. Uh, I I did one day and then Red Eye Radio came back as a syndicated show. So but so, it you know, I did a bunch of fill ins between June and December, uh, you know, New Year's Eve, basically. Through all the Thanksgiving holiday and Christmas uh, stuff, but there's nothing on the calendar in the foreseeable future. And uh, if they never call again, I'm fine with it because, for, first of all, I don't want to talk about the 2024 presidential election. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to. I, I just don't want. I don't want to do it. It's it's just poisonous. So what's the, why invite that into your life? And at some point, there's no way to escape it as you get closer. As right. you get closer to these with the, you know, primaries coming, you know, up and all you can't and all the trials and all the stuff that just makes people crazed. And I just don't want to do it. So I was going to ask you about uh, that. It was a fun experience. Huh? No, I said it was a fun experience to be oh, over there and they okay. treated me great. And I knew a lot of people in the building. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask you very uh, quickly about uh about the political situation this year <laughs> being that, uh, uh, you know, what is it? 2020, you know, the last election, it's the last election over again with, with Biden. Only Trump. worse if that's possible. Yeah. It's the yeah. last election, only worse. It's, yeah. it really is. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it, I, I, I say this, 
specifically, I'm 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 heartsick over it. I I it 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 nauseates me what's happened to the country across the board. Uh and and I'm and I'm scared. I'm scared of what's gonna happen uh either way uh as we go forward. Uh the certainly uh I I I I, I well I'm just gonna say it. I think that the Liz Cheney book, Oath and Honor, is the uh is the is the scariest book I've ever read in my life. Really? Uh, it is it is profoundly. I can't read it at night because I can't go to sleep if I read it at night. I, I have to do. Oh, there's I, an endorsement for you. <laughs> no, but I mean it's so important. Unfortunately, I think you know the people who should read it are not going to read it and dismiss it as just a bunch of baloney. And it's tragic because it's it's chapter and verse and it's very easy. It's 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 just laid out very clearly. And on the other side of the equation, the Democrats have got their own problem. They've not they're going to nominate a a man who's clearly diminished physically and, and mentally. I don't think there's any question about that. If you just look at Joe Biden from a few years ago, he's not the same guy. Uh, I think his vice presidential uh, if he sticks with Kamala Harris, I thought she was incompetent when she was the uh, district attorney in San Francisco. So nothing's changed my opinion in that regard. We once produced James Madison and Dwight Eisenhower, and now it's come to this. And it just it just saddens me. I don't know how many people have said it. I've heard it in the last six months. It's like uh, you have 330 million people in this country. And this, this is what we got. This is the two of them again. Yeah. Well, all I can tell you is as I got older, I finally decided I'm going to stop worrying about that stuff. I can't do anything about it. I did my best while I was trying to, you know, have conversations with people in the radio and business and so forth. And now it's just, I just kind of sit back and relax. I'm retired and that's the way I stood it. It's yeah, gonna stay. I, w- I wish I could embrace that. I mean, my, maybe it's because we have these little grandchildren who are running around and I feel like through civil war and through depressions and World War II and the Cold War, we managed, uh, you know, in the middle of the Civil War, people voted for president of the United States yeah. and we counted the electoral votes and we carried on. And now we had people in Iowa saying that they actually want a dictator. They they they, they used the word. This wasn't a leading question. They said America needs a dictator. And, 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 and I, I, you know, and people openly talk about civil war as if that would be a good thing. The thing about that kind of talk that concerns me is I just uh, people don't know what they're saying. I understand, That's, but there's a lot of them. There's a yeah, lot of people saying yeah. it. There, there's millions of our fellow Americans are are calling for. Uh, and by the way, I'd like to point out that that I believe that if Donald Trump does win, there will be profound violence on the left. I, I, I wish that I was wrong about this. I hope I'm proven wrong. But I think that if Donald Trump wins, I think that you're going to see cities burn because the way we saw after the George Floyd incident, how uh, spontaneous, yeah. uh, spontaneous. Violence. I hope I'm wrong about all of this, but I but I really don't want to I don't want to be alive to see Americans throw away the United States Constitution and the institutions that have made us the most successful country in the history of the world. And that's what we're doing. We're just dismissing things as if they're irrelevant, as if it's just blah, blah, blah. And it's not. It's really important. But Rome. Yeah. Have faith in your grandkids. They'll fix it. 
Well, right now they're three and a half. It's up to us to <laughs> hand it off to them. Right. You know. Right. All right, Doug. Thank you. This has been great. I I really appreciate it. And uh, please give uh, Penny my best. I know she's been she's been doing really well with her book and her uh, books. Plural. The second one now. just came out yesterday. Sonnets from Suburbia. Romance. Hey, I'm losing you again. Valentine's Day, Dave. Okay, I, was, <laughs> I, I lost you again. You kind of clipped and, and hung up there. So uh, that's by Penny Pizer. She's got sonnets. She's a wonderful actress, and she just does a great job with those books. So thank you, sir. It was great talking to you. Dave, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right, bye. Bye.